It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Hello and welcome to the Transfer Window, the podcast that takes you inside the biggest deals at the biggest clubs in world football. I'm Johnny McFarlane and I'm joined as usual by podcast regulars Duncan Castles and Ian McGarry. This week, Manchester City target Rafael Leao, a 19-year-old Portuguese striker currently embroiled in the chaos at Sporting Lisbon. At Manchester United, we look at recent reports that Luke Shaw could be on the verge of a new contract and give you the latest lowdown on everything you need to know about Paul Pogba and a potential move away from Old Trafford. Jeradan Shakiri has been lighting up the World Cup, but could he soon be on his way to Anfield? We look at what the Stoke man could bring to Jurgen Klopp's side. And it's been VAR controversy throughout this World Cup so far, Duncan and Ian have their say on the topic everyone's talking about. Okay, so straight to the big transfer news and Duncan has a story about Manchester City and their pursuit of a Portuguese starlet. Duncan, tell us more. Yeah, this is a story um, we broke on the transfer window um, early in the year that uh, Manchester City um, have been trying to sign Rafael Leon, who's uh, an 18-year-old um, Centre forward can also play wide um, at Sporting. Um, they got in on this very early before he'd really broken into the Sporting first team this season. Um, they made uh, an offer or made it clear that they were prepared to offer 25 million euros for him uh, during the season to sign him this summer. Sporting wouldn't even listen to that offer, wouldn't get involved in discussions. Um, I'm told that Chief Bergeristan had arranged to fly to Lisbon to to talk in person with Sporting about it and see what their um, demands would be for the player. Uh, Sporting's president, Bruno de Carvalho, refused to even meet Bergeristan and discuss the matter. Since then, as um, as we've uh, we've talked about on the on the podcast with our uh, Portuguese friend Sergio Cricinis, um Sporting has sort of uh, fallen into the, the biggest mess of its of its long um, proud history. Um, the uh, the president was kicked out at the weekend. Um, a number of senior players have have uh, torn up their contracts and petitioned for uh, what's called a just cause um, termination termination of their contract. One of them, Rui Patricio, has signed for Wolverhampton Wanderers, um, the Portuguese goalkeeper. And Rafael Leon is in that category of player who's uh, petitioned for just cause, torn up his contract and is in principle free to sign for anyone um, this summer. Manchester City have continued their interest. They've made a proposal of a contract to Rafael Leon um, and are waiting to see um, if he'll accept that. So they're at the front of the race at the moment, but 
understandably, given uh, the player's talent and his potential, he's regarded by a lot of people as the as the best attacking talent in Portugal at present, already playing for Portugal's under-21 team. There are a lot of clubs interested here. I know he also has a, a contract offer from Leicester City, who um, also being ambitious in this transfer market, obviously a very different level of club, but probably in the sense that there won't be as much competition to get into the first team. So something that might attract him as a, as a first move out of Portugal. But most of the leading clubs in Europe are looking at this. And I think we're going to see um, an auction for his services and an auction where he's in a, in a strong position and that he no longer has to get um, agreement from Sporting on a transfer fee necessarily to move, although there could be um, compromises involved given what's happened at the club, um, where um, a suitor like Manchester says, he says, OK, we, will, we know we can take the player for free, but we'll offer you a few million euros um, if you allow him to come to us uh, rather than other clubs. And given that situation, Duncan, as well, um, which we talked about before, where the players were attacked inside their own dressing room, the training ground, etc., the just cause uh, argument for those players who, who want to leave would certainly be, I think, upheld or at least seriously considered in the Court of Arbitration for Sport, if that's where it went to, um, should UEFA not be able to sort it out themselves. Now, one of the players, I think, who's impressed <clears throat> hugely and not surprisingly at this World Cup is William Carvalho, the central midfielder um, for Sporting, who has also um, filed for Just Cause. Justin Martins, as well, has interest in lots of, of clubs in the Premier League. And while no club... Uh, including Sporting Lisbon, would want to be in a situation where they may lose six, seven, eight of their best players in one transfer window. They don't have any choice given what's going on at the club. And of course, uh, the club are trying to appoint new administrators in order to uh, reason both with players, agents and any interested club. So rather than go to tribunal at any official body, they can agree a some kind of transfer fee rather than just cause Good luck with that, depending on who you're dealing with, because if it's uh, Tottenham Hotspur, William Carvalho, I suggest that that'll be going straight to court. But uh, elsewhere, um, they may well be able to agree fees for, for some of those players, although I think Wills will be paying um, more than nothing for Rio Patricio to be their new goalkeeper. So uh, it's going to be a very interesting um, few weeks for those players, Sporting Lisbon and for the clubs who are chasing chasing up on the what are very, very good players who are potentially, we should say potentially, available for, for no fee? Yeah, Rui Patricio is a good example there because um, Wolves actually offered Sporting €80 million Euros, uh, for the player rather than <laughs> signing him on, um, on freedom of contract. Uh, someone at Sporting uh, agreed that fee. And then the president, Bruno de Carvalho, said, no, €80 million is not enough. I want another €2 million on top of it. Um, a Wolves then pulled out and signed the player and said, well, we'll, we'll take it to arbitration. And that's a big part of what, what's happening here. On, on Sunday, there was an extraordinary meeting at Sporting where the club's supporters decided to kick the Carvalho out as president. Um, he came up after the meeting with an extraordinary um, uh, statement, exit statement, in which... Um, he, he said, I'm no longer part of Sporting Club de Portugal. 
because I've been conned. I no longer want to be part of a group of cretins who are not worth the air they breathe. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, so you're gonna, go out in style. If you're going to go, go in style. <laughs> Indeed. He, uh, he added to that, my apologies to the sporting fans for not even at this time being a hypocrite and lying to you. You are worth nothing in this sporting club of Portugal. <laughs> Yes. Uh, yeah, maybe, maybe I was wrong, Duncan. Maybe there will be quite a few free transfers happening. <laughs> but that, I think that gives you a taste of, of what, um, what the players and what the agents and what other clubs were dealing with with their Car- De Carvalho before he left. Um, the fans wanted him out so that they can now uh, make the best of a bad situation in the sense that um, they realise they're going to lose these players if they allow uh, the, the legal process to pan out, then they're at the whim of the court. And it will also take several years before they get fees for the players and the club needs money quickly. Therefore, the sensible strategy is to take compromise deals such as the one the Wolves were offering for Rui Patricio. Um, uh, so they're going to end up taking a knockdown on the release clauses and a knockdown on, on realistic transfer values. But I think this will accelerate the... Um, the fire sale process there is at Sporting with some of that top Portuguese talent moving um, to certainly to the Premier League uh, this summer. Well, Sporting aren't the only club in some kind of chaos. Duncan, you have uh, some news from Italy about another club that could be heading towards a bit of trouble. Yeah, it's AC Milan, um, second most successful club in European Cup Champions League history. Uh, They're waiting for a final verdict um, from UEFA on uh, financial fair play contraventions that have occurred since um, a Chinese businessman bought the club last summer and spent um, or committed 250 million euros to transfers in a single summer window, which was the the third highest amount spent by any club last summer after um, Paris Saint-Germain and Manchester City. I'm told uh, by sources at UEFA that they intend to kick uh, Milan out of the Europa League next season. The reason they they want to do this is they they want to make an example of Milan because where they've looked at the club's finances, they looked at the way the club was bought um, with a lot of debt involved and very high interest debts and the way the club has been funded since that purchase. Their analysis is that the spending, that quarter billion spending, was funded by debt and was essentially a gamble that um, Milan would qualify for the Champions League for this coming season and that the Champions League revenue that would come to them as a result would cover um, the debt costs that occurred in in signing so many players at high prices quickly. Um, They don't want to see clubs doing that. They don't want to see clubs gambling on high spending and gambling on um, on getting their meeting the financial fair play protocols. Uh, Milan have had a couple of goes at coming to voluntary agreements with UEFA, which have been rejected, um, and are now essentially using media to um, to try and for, uh, forestall this uh, expulsion by saying that um, we've done what we can and we, we expect a fair judgment. Um, we expect justice and to be treated the same way as other clubs. From what I understand, that's gone down very badly with UEFA uh, and the expectation is that they'll, they'll, they'll go through with the ban. What that means is a lot of those players who were signed last summer, um, the, the most prominent of which was Leonardo Bonucci, signed from Juventus for 
2.2 million euros, their futures come into doubt. Um, can Milan uh, afford to keep them um, with in, in the situation they're in? And would a player of Benucci's quality be prepared to stay at Milan with not even, forget about Champions League football, but not even Europa League football to play um, in the coming season? And Benucci is one of uh, several players that Manchester United have shortlisted as candidates to strengthen at centre-back. So um, that's one that uh, we should pay attention to this week to see if, if UEFA carries through this threat to, to ban um, Milan and what the response to the players is going to be um, if that ban comes into place. What would be interesting, Duncan, <clears throat> should UEFA go uh, ahead with that ban? In my memory, it would be the first time they have acted in this way against one of the elite super clubs who, yes. you know, is are part of very much um, UEFA's own prestigious history in their tournaments, obviously Champions League winners multiple times. Um, <clears throat> and so, unfortunately for Italian football, it's symptomatic of their declining power. Um, and by that, I mean Italy as a nation and Serie A as a competition. Um, and it's also... Um, symptomatic of uh, clubs seeking quick fixes through foreign investors without doing due diligence to make sure that the money that is being promised is actually there. And it's sad that a club like AC Milan you know, would be banned uh, from European competition for uh, effectively breaking the rules, um, having allowed themselves to get into that situation by you know, selling to someone who was giving them the highest price and promising the most money without actually asking where the money was coming from and getting written guarantees about that money. So the consequence of losing player a player like Bonucci would be would also be very hurtful given that they've not performed well anyway in the last few years in Serie A even. So uh, on on merit alone, never mind on investment, they're definitely down the the, uh, the side of um, the wrong side, if you like, uh, given their proud history. So that would be a very, I mean, Duncan, are we expecting a decision by the end of this week? It sounds like one that they would like to bury that bad news under a World Cup result. The, the decision was actually expected yesterday and it got delayed um, when I, th I think as a response mm -hmm. to Milan um, putting out their social media video um, complaining about what might happen when they were sentenced by UEFA. But <clears throat> My contact UEFA says a decision will um, be made this week. And, will be made um, yeah, will be made public this week. And the guidance I'm getting is that the, the video hasn't changed anything. In fact, if it, it's, it's simply um, further annoyed uh, the officials at UEFA. What, what's also an additional factor here is that um, a lot of the money that was used to purchase Milan from Silvio Berlusconi was provided by an American hedge fund. Um, called Elliot um, at, at an extremely high interest rate. Um, the loan on part of the loan on from Elliot is due in October. Um, if that's not repaid, and the expectation is that it doesn't look likely to be repaid, then Elliot can take control of the club from um, the Chinese businessman who has yeah. ownership. <clears throat> um, and we've all already seen um, at least one. Uh, bidder go public with their interest in buying um, the club from China um, and 
probably not coincidentally, that's an American buyer, the Ricketts, Ricketts family who own Chicago Cubs. So I think you see, um, again, we've seen this throughout European football, whereas uh, franchise, rich franchise owners in American sports see the value of buying uh, big name clubs in Europe and they see this very much like FSG bought Liverpool as an opportunity to buy a big name brand at a cheap price where um, a financing uh, company wants to get out of um, their commitments to the club and so that's what happened with Royal Bank of Scotland um, and Hicks and Gillette and Royal Bank of Scotland effect, effect, effectively forced the sale of Liverpool at an opt-down priced FSG. And you, you see a similar scenario developing here with, with Milan. Which then forced Duncan, the Premier League, to completely restructure the fit and proper persons test. Um, although I would suggest that Portsmouth's debacle uh, in terms of the way they spent money recklessly and then ended up in League Two, uh, as well as League United, was all, where there were also factors in that. But it just it says a lot about the fact that investors, foreign investors particularly, have come in to the Premier League in the last five years, and Leicester City would be the best example, um, have to actually provide proof of funds and proof of financial uh, guarantees before they're allowed to be passed the fit and proper persons test. And it sounds like Serie A could do with putting some uh, regulations in place themselves. Probably easier when they're not buying clubs from the former Italian Prime Minister. Bunga bunga. <laughs> well, with that, we'll move on. Uh, we talked about Benucci being potentially on Manchester United's shopping list. So let's go to the Old Trafford Club and get the latest news from there, in particular on Paul Pogba, who's currently starring for France at the World Cup. Ian, you have some news. <clears throat> well, it's it's news and, it, and, it's, and it's, it's kind of new news and, and, and news which has followed on from things that happened last season, Johnny. Um, <clears throat> Duncan brought us very great detail uh, in terms of the way that Pogba's relationship with uh, coach Jose Mourinho had deteriorated <clears throat> over his demands to be played in a different role. Pogba himself admitted to French radio and television in the last five, six days that he did have problems. Uh, he described them as petit. Uh, <laughs> I'm not sure they were, <clears throat> but, you know, they were there. He's admitted they were there. And um, I think with the marketing of Pogba very publicly by his agent Mina Raiola, who we all know is is not shy of, you know, trying to uh, get um, at least offers, if you like, for his players. Then the question is: Is Pogba doing that with Manchester United's blessing, or is he doing that to wind Manchester United up, or is he doing it because the player himself wants to know what his options are? And my information is that there is a certain degree of consent from Manchester United that if they could achieve a fee of the same as they bought Pog before or obviously more and obviously that would be greatly helped if he has a, a, an extended and um, a very good World Cup then they would be willing to look at alternatives for Pogba next season which says something about where Pogba's current position in Jose Mourinho's plans um, is I think I still think Pogba will more than likely remain, and that's the financial part because you know achieving that fee and you know, him getting a different contract or a better contract somewhere else would be very difficult. It would have to be Paris Saint Germain basically or nowhere. <clears throat> well, there's a report. There's a report in the press today that Marco Verratti is part of a swap deal. Marco Verratti plus cash, which would seem to me to be a a deal and a half potentially. Well, <clears throat> my my 
own opinion would be that Verratti would be much better suited to Manchester United's uh, play than Pogba currently is. But I've also heard that Verratti has been offered a new contract to Paris Saint-Germain um, to keep him there because uh, that he, he is valued by Thomas Tuchel, the new manager, who wants to, to include him as a, as a fulcrum of his midfield. So that would be conflicting. Um, I'm not sure what Jose Mourinho's views on Verratti are. I don't think he's ever been in contention to buy him in the past. I know that Chelsea were very keen on him last summer. And, uh, of course, the nonsense which goes on at Stamford Bridge with regards to what the manager wants and what everyone else wants meant that Verratti stayed put. But um, I wouldn't see that as a bad deal for Manchester United. But I think it's just interesting um, that Pogba admits to having problems with Mourinho while he's in Russia. Then Raiola, as we know, very good at getting stories out there, starts to openly market or has been openly marketing the player um, to find out what his options are. And as I said, if France go to the semi-finals final of the World Cup and Pogba is one of the outstanding players, then his value increases. Therefore, his um, the chances of him moving or certainly the, the suitors will certainly increase. And we may have movement on Pogba before the, the um, end of the transfer window. I think um, Verratti is... It's not been mentioned to me as one of the players that Paris Saint-Germain want to move on. Um, I know for a fact that Verratti wanted to leave last summer and um, was very explicitly told by Qatar that there was no way he would be allowed to leave the club, whatever the offer was for his suitors, um, whatever the offer was to him. Um, essentially, they came up with a proposition which was you have two options. You can stay and play for Paris Saint-Germain or you can stay and not play for Paris Saint-Germain for a season. And he chose to stay and play. Um, so I'd be surprised if they were now offering him. They have, um, they have another a number of other candidates to sell uh, and players that they're, they're happy to sell, such as Di Maria and Draxler, um, to raise cash. I'd also be surprised if if Mourinho was to countenance a, a, a swap deal or a swap cash, plus cash deal for Verratti. Um, why? Because Verratti is not the tallest of midfielders and Jose Mourinho's already signed uh, an uncharacteristically small um, yeah. Fred to, um, to kind of knit the, the defence and attack. And um, Fred will be a starter, and I, I honestly cannot imagine a Jose Mourinho midfield with two, um, including two midfielders of uh, such diminutive stature, because he's never in his career as he as he fielded a starting um, lineup in big games uh, of, of that type. Pogba um, is a is a fractious area. Um, the situation is not resolved. Um, there are issues between Mino Raiola, Jose Mourinho, Manchester United. There are, um, there's a history of issues between Pogba and um, Mourinho from last season. The fact that uh, Pogba is prepared to talk about that publicly is telling. Um, however, the plan going into the summer has been that Pogba would stay um, and the expectation was that he would stay and uh, uh, to be retained and to change the structure of midfield as he's already started to do by bringing Fred in to try and improve it and to get the uh, better performances out of of the unit as as a unit next season. So um, I don't think it's impossible that if 
a club like Paris Saint-Germain or Barcelona or Real Madrid were to come with a, a very lucrative proposal for Pogba that appealed to the player, I don't think it's impossible that could happen because it, because of the background in which this is occurring, i.e. Pogba has been unhappy during the season, Raiola has been unhappy during the season, Mourinho has been unhappy during the season. So if you present all three of them with a, with a viable way out that makes good money for the club and allows reinvestment elsewhere, I, I wouldn't rule that out. What, what I find difficult to see at this point is where that's coming from, given that you know, we know Paris Saint-Germain are targeting Cristiano Ronaldo, can they do Cristiano Ronaldo and Pogba in, in the same window? Well, that would take a lot of um, restructuring there. Real Madrid, Paul Pogba was not first choice for them. Um, so, yeah, and it, it's a very expensive deal, both in terms of transfer fee and salary. So you really need strong suitors. Generally, you need strong suitors to make these deals happen. Okay, I'm going to move on now. Um, my variety link seems to have been completely poo-pooed, so we'll just skip on past that. And we are going to have a look at reports that Luke Shaw, a player we've been fairly withering about here at the transfer window, let's not pretend, uh, might be offered a new contract. Duncan, does that surprise you? It does um, surprise me. Um, I think this is one of the situations where you've got to look carefully at what exactly has been reported. And, and the word could there is, a, is important. It doesn't surprise me that Manchester United would be, be, would be briefing that there is a possibility that the player could be offered a new contract, given that he's still their employee, um, given that there's one year left on his current contract, and given that they, they consider him as a sellable asset. Um, and I, I think that is the fundamental problem here for Manchester United, and we've seen it over the last few seasons, is the club's reluctance to take hits on players who have failed um, on bad signings, um, which has meant that they still have players like Luke Shaw, um, Matteo Darmian, um, Daley Blind in the first team squad, uh, contributing very little, but taking significant salaries from the club. I mean, I, I looked at this this morning, and Luke Shaw has been now been at Manchester United for four years. He started 37 Premier League games in his four seasons at the club. So that's he's made, he's actually played less than in a, a normal uh, Premier League season across four years at the club. Um, 3,055 Premier League minutes in four years, which, is so, which tells you how often he's been substituted because that is the equivalent of 34 full matches. Um, yet, in those four years, he's been paid £100,000 a week so he's taken £25 million in wages out of the club on top of the £30 million record salary, for, record um, transfer fee for a fullback that they paid for him four years ago. So it's a £55 million investment for 37 starts. There comes a point where you have to <laughs> cut your losses. He played, he started eight Premier League games last season, um, and that's competing against Luke uh, Ashley Young, who's um, you know converted... Uh, winger in his 30s, um, still not able to hold down a starting place, given opportunities again, um, uh, praised by Jose Mourinho for his attitude at one point during the season. And so the door was left open for him to, to really establish himself at left back and then turn, returns to type, um, loses his place. And we've seen pictures of him in, uh, in one of the tabloids this week of him on holiday where he looks like he's carrying more weight than I do. Um, Steady. And then, 
this is this is just just a few weeks, just a few weeks before he has to start to try and um, win his place back in, in the first team. So really, why would you want to give the player a new contract in the hope that you can extract a transfer fee from another Premier League club? The sensible strategy for me would be to say, okay, what can we get from this summer? Let's take that money and stop paying him five million pounds a year to be a reserve that the manager can't trust. I think that's right, Duncan. Apart from anything else, <clears throat> when you renegotiate a player's contract, he's not going to take a cut in pay. So you therefore commit yourself not only to more years, but to more than the five million pounds he currently earns for doing very little. I think it's certainly the case that they've been trying hard for two years to sell him, and one of the reasons they can is because he. Exactly what you said, his inconsistency of performance, his inconsistency of game time, um, the fact he's on a high salary. He's a young man. Um, I think if he wants to seriously make a career in football, then he needs to take a pay cut and go somewhere else where he'll play more regularly and then hope then to resurrect his career and perhaps reach an elite level club uh, in two or three years' time. Because at this moment in time, um, I agree with you, um, he didn't look the best when he was on that yacht in Ibiza, although fair play to him that can afford it because you've just outlined his salary. The transfer window is looking for a new sponsor. A deal would put your company at the top of our show and expose your brand to the thousands of transfer window listeners. If this is something that appeals, please get in touch via the usual channels on social media. Okay, well, we're going to move on to another big English Premiership club in Liverpool and their pursuit of Sheridan Shakiri, who's had a very good World Cup so far. And obviously a creative attacking player. Is this exactly what Liverpool needs, Ian? Um, it's something Liverpool uh, covet at this moment in time. We've seen that, obviously, with their um, uh, public pursuit of, of Nabil Fakir, <clears throat> who allegedly failed the medical and that's why the move from Lyon didn't go through. Uh, I'm not sure that that is entirely the, uh, let's just say the 100% truth of the case. I do believe that um, Liverpool were alerted to Shakiri being available for a much, much lower price than the 38 million Lyon were demanding for Fakir. Um, similar players, although you'd have to say Fakir has been more consistent, but Shakiri does have that kind of enigmatic talent about him where he can produce moments of brilliance. Um, but at this moment in time, FSG being, you know, the sort of uh, very uh, good keepers of the purse that they, they've shown to be uh, during their time as the owners of Liverpool. Shakiri uh, is, from my information, is available for around £8 million after Stokes' relegation. Um, that would go up to around £12 million in add-ons depending on his appearances in the, if for another Premier League club. His wages are not um, as high either, not even as high as Luke Shaw's, would you believe, but I suspect he would be paid around £100,000, £120,000 a week if he moved to Anfield. And let's face it, look, Liverpool right now, with Manny, Firmino and Salah, does not need replacing, that's for sure. However, what Jurgen Klopp is looking for is a player who can come in and deputise for any of those players. Because as we saw last season, when Salah took uh, a knock and lost three weeks, Manny was out for about six weeks. Uh, Firmino was suspended as well. They struggled a little to fill those players um, with someone of the same quality. Shakiri would also put a little bit of pressure on those players as well because he is talented and he, you know, he can do it. What he's not done so far in English football is shown it on a regular basis. 
But when he's when he's up for it, when he's bothered, he can make a difference. It's not just the dribbling or the or the shooting. He actually does make you know, quite a lot of chances for other players as well. And I think that would be a cute move for Liverpool um, in terms of getting him to Anfield. He's not moving very far from Stoke, obviously. Um, there's interest with Southampton, where of course he might consider because he would play more regularly. But if you're playing Champions League and Shakir from everything I've heard from some of his teammates, does have a bit of an ego about him. I think would love the idea that you go to Liverpool and secure a first team space. Maybe Firmino plays as false nine and he comes in uh, to the trident behind or not. Um, look, I think it's an interesting one. I think he's very talented. I think he's shown that at the World Cup. He'll have offers from other other clubs, that's for sure, given his form. But a little bit like I think I compare him to Marko Nautovic. I think he's one of those players who, you know, we've all played with guys at five or eight or just that. I mean. And I'm not saying this about Shakiri or Nautovic. They're a bit overweight, but they've got some talent in them and you just can't get the ball off them. They score great goals. That's us playing five-a-side. I think Nautovic and Shakira are a little bit like that overweight player at five-a-side for us. They've got that talent and bit about them, but they just don't do it. They don't apply themselves enough to be that extra special player. So I think with a bit of um, encouragement and maybe a move to Anfield, then Shakiri could certainly improve. What you can say about Shakiri is a player that Liverpool have, have tried to sign in the past and the way Liverpool's recruitment work is they, they tend to identify players um, initially on statistical uh, performance in the field and once they've identified them, they quite often pursue them for a sustained time and, and eventually sign them. Um, Mohamed Salah is an example of that. Sadio Mane is a, another example of that. And, and I think you're right. I think he, they need... Um, additional players who can deputise for the attacking trident. They were um, fortunate in some ways last season in that none of them suffered uh, significant injuries and they were able to play them repeatedly through the season until, of course, the Champions League final, the worst possible time for, for an injury to take place. And, and we saw the impact that had on their um, on their chance to, to win the final against Madrid. So they do need uh, backup there. Obviously, Shaqiri's not first choice, but... Um, you're looking at a, an economical alternative. And um, and I also um, understand you're correct in that Southampton have, have been trying to, to sign the player and be pushing quite hard for him as uh, as an option to, to strengthen their attack. So um, what would be a surprise if he ends up moving out, outside the Premier League, I think we will see him being transferred because of that low release clause. Um, and we will see him again in the Premier League this coming season. He's a different kind of player, though, isn't he, to the three that they have? Because they're all very, very fast. Well, especially the two, what we would consider wild, wide players in Manny and Salah. Whereas Shakiri, he's explosive. He's a guy who can crack one in from 30 yards. So if you're going up against a low-block defence, which they struggled against all season, he's a man that can maybe pop one in for you when you're struggling or create I, something out of nothing. I agree, Johnny. I think I think he is different. And I think that's Klopp will look at what he's got so far and what he's got are players who high press and who, who attack on the counter at exceptional pace and go in behind defences and can inter-exchange inter passes in order to create goals. What Shakiri can do is he can link middle third to final third with a killer ball. We've seen it you know, numerous times at Stoke City, which of course is not the kind of um, got the, the gene pool of talent which, which Liverpool has to run onto those balls. So Shakir could play as a number 10 or he can play as a 7 or as an 11. And what he will give you, again, is a little bit of variation in play where, yes, he does, he's not fast like 
Firmino, Salah and Mane, what he is, is his football brain is fast. He sees an opening, he can, he's got a little bit of decent acceleration. Mm. He can't sustain it. Like there's no, there's no gear change for Shakiri. But what he's got is quite a fast first five, seven metres, which allows him to get past his man and then create the opportunity either to pass or shoot. And his shooting's very good. Remember, he's very good at free kicks as well. His free kick taking is very good. At this moment in time, Liverpool, you know, you wouldn't say there's, there's no Coutinho there, put it that way, who would take charge of all free kicks. So <clears throat> I think it would be a very uh, sensible move for Liverpool in terms of augmenting um, their squad for next season. OK, well, we're going to move on to a little bit about the World Cup and what else can we discuss but VAR. Duncan, what are your... Well, I suppose people actually probably have a pretty good idea of what your uh, feelings are about VAR based on your Twitter feeds, but tell me how you think it's gone in the tournament so far. I think it's predictable. I think you, you, you've simply shifted or added additional points of controversy into refereeing decisions. So we're now not just questioning the referee and we're not just questioning the linesman, we're questioning the VARs. And the VARs are questioning the referee. Um, I think one thing that's been noticeable to me watching these games um, through the tournament uh, is that virtually every game has a point of controversy over VAR. And, and again, that's not surprising because virtually every game we watch has a point of controversy over refereeing. And, you know, and we all watch games uh, post -match, during the game and post-match and argue whether a decision was right or not by watching the video evidence and the pundits do it. Um, and how often do you actually see the pundits all agreeing? Or how often do you agree with all of the pundits on, on these controversial decisions? It doesn't happen very often. So again, no surprise that if you allow video into the process and you have a group of officials several hundred miles away from the game watching multiple angles, um, and, and seeing an element of doubt in a decision, that they'll, they'll question that decision. And then this, the, the thing I hadn't expected, which I've, I've seen in the World Cup, is what you're allowing is, or what you're encouraging is uh, players and coaches to protest every single important decision in the match. So when a referee gives a penalty, we always see players complaining about it, but they don't expect it to be overturned because it's almost never overturned in, in normal football, referees' decision stands. But now the players know they've got a chance of getting it overturned. They know that if they surround the referee and say, well, I didn't touch him or he dived or make the usual complaints, then the chances are the referee will either have, have something going on his ear from Moscow telling him, well, we're not 100% sure on that, or he'll go to Moscow and say, well, can you... Can you let me check on that? Now, if he does then go to the, the side of the pitch and, and watch the video again, as happened, for example, with the, the Neymar uh, penalty um, against Costa Rica, you, he's not making that decision in an in a unbiased, neutral fashion anymore. He's, he's had these players petitioning him and putting the element of doubt in his mind. He's also as I think we saw in, in that particular game, he, was, he made the decision on one angle and the one angle selected for, for him by a VAR in Moscow. And he made the decision very quickly because generally these guys are under pressure to make the decision quickly. This, that, all of this fundamentally changes the way a game is refereed. And I don't see that we're getting all the decisions correct because we're having VAR. You watch the, the Portugal-Iran um, game um, and I think I think FIFA dodged a bullet there because that was not a penalty. 
that Iran got at the end of the game to equalise. And as a result of the penalty that they got, Iran almost knocked Portugal out of the World Cup. They had a, a clear shot and goal in the final minute. If that ball goes in, Portugal go out of the World Cup on the basis of a bad VAR decision a couple of minutes earlier. Um, I think if that had happened, VAR would be in serious trouble. I think it's problematic anyway because we're not getting lots of obviously clear decisions. We are getting some things fixed, but we're not getting everything fixed. And we're we're adding huge amounts <coughs> and this problem of players petitioning referees and affecting decisions. I'm, Johnny, I'm a fan of the original VR introduction, which was very um, concise. It was this, that if the referee, on-field referee, had any doubt a decision that he made or didn't make, which was maybe a clear and obvious mistake, he could refer it to VAR. What's changed in this World Cup is that there has um, been given a mandate for an automatic review based on what the VAR referees hundreds or thousands of miles away see as a clear and obvious mistake. I think we've had too many officials who maybe feeling a little bit put out because they're not on the pitch, they're not fully involved, telling the referee in his ear, putting that element of doubt into him, his ear, saying, you, you might want to review that, mate, because that's definitely wrong. And at that point, when he does that, the players appeal, as Duncan said, the managers, but even the fans have been shouting VAR and doing the, the whole rectangle thing. And I think that's where VAR is falling down. Um, there are too many people trying to influence the decision. And as Plato once said, if you give the mob a right to question your decision, then you have a negotiation. And that's not what the rules of football are about. It's not about negotiating what's right and what's wrong. It's about what is within the rules and what isn't. And that's got to be a decision, not negotiation. And right now, we've got far too many negotiations going on on the field of play. Duncan, is the problem not that we've got away from this idea of clear and obvious? Now, the example I would use was Cristiano Ronaldo last night. For me, there's no way you could say that's a clear and obvious red card, yet it was referred. I think, to be fair in that situation, the, the reporting I've heard is that the referee asked for VAR assistance on it. Um, and and if, he didn't actually give a yellow card either, Duncan. He waited to see the review. Yeah. So, in that situation, if the protocol is being properly followed, then the VAR shouldn't intervene unless they think it's a clear and obvious red card. However, if the referee asks the VR for help, they're allowed to uh, give their guidance on it and then the yellow card is, is okay. I think, I think the, 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 the fundamental issue is the reason there was such um, resistance to video refereeing before was you wanted to leave it the, the, the final arbiter of decisions on a football field down to one man because then you, there is one individual responsible and the decisions are made during the game. And, and they, they can be wrong, but it goes down to one individual. Now, we no, it's no longer down to one individual. It's down to multiple individuals. And I think, um, I think Ian's characterization of it is, is correct in the sense that the VR are getting involved and they are putting the element of doubt in mind. I think technically on the protocol, every decision ultimately comes down to the referee so that VAR can say in the studio, I think that was a penalty, um, you should overrule it. They're, they're supposed to check every decision and then give advice. 
but the referee can ultimately say, no, I don't agree with you. I don't think it was a penalty. He doesn't have to watch the video again. He can overrule. However, the, the, the nature of, you know, of us as human individuals is when, someone, when, when you're asked to make a complex decision quickly, uh, you think you're right, but you have people immediately questioning it and, and, and putting doubt in your mind. The likelihood is you will waver and say, okay, I, 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 um, I see to your uh, view or I'll have another look at the video and having been influenced by, by your view, I'll change my mind. And, and we've lost that element of there is one sole arbiter on the field. There's now multiple arbiters and, and, and some of those arbiters are distant from the action and dependent on video as opposed to um, being there in the game um, and making the, making the decisions as they, they see them on the pitch. Sometimes being able to see things on the pitch is better than being able to watch multiple video replays of something. Because the, 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 the replays, as we see ourselves watching, often disagree. They often give different views. They're not clear cut. This is not a panacea. We don't get the right decision every time because of VAR. So we have then to consider the costs of having VAR there. For me, those costs are significant, not just John, financial. Johnny, here's, here's, here's an analogy for you in terms of the human aspect of this. Think about the quiz show, Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? And when the person in the chair is not sure about an answer and he says, I'm going to ask the audience, and the audience says 92% say answer A. Did you ever see anyone ignore the audience? I don't think. I never saw it. And it's like that with VR. He's got four guys watching multiple video angles. And he's thinking, am I really going to overrule these people? Where in actual fact, you could have a referee of 20 years' experience have done World Cup finals, European championships, Copa Americas, Champions League finals, and his instinct is 99% of the time correct. UEFA, FIFA, or FIFA in this instance, have introduced an element of doubt in which he might be shown to have made a wrong decision and that four people sitting watching multiple video angles, which he's not got access to in the time he has to make a decision, then tell him, no, that's actually wrong. So despite the fact that he can go to that um, screen and watch it again for himself, he can't watch every angle because it takes too long in the way that the guys in Moscow have done so. And therefore, it's go with the audience. And, and that's why we're getting wrong or bad decisions. Just, just one, one final point on that. By definition, the guys on the field should be the better referees. I don't see anything where FIFA have decided to put the best no, that's referees true. They're not. in the video. <clears throat> the, the guys in the video studio are the ones who weren't good enough to be selected to be on yeah. the pitch referees. And I suspect they're having quite a nice time in the Moscow nightclubs as well. <laughs> Oh dear, let's not go there. Okay, right, moving on to the quickfire round because we could talk about VAR all day. We're now going on to the quickfire round and who else but England who have turned from no-hopers into potential world champions on the back of an astonishing 6-1 victory over the mighty Panama. They're flying high, but there are some players that still split opinions amongst fans. So I'm going to give each of the guys a name and you're going to tell me what you think of their World Cup so far. So, first of all, starting with Duncan, nice and easy one, Harry Kane. <laughs> well, Harry Kane, um, you can't, can't do much more than score the amount of goals he's been scoring. Um, and as in like, a real candidate for the Golden Boot, um, having scored those goals against the mighty Panama and the mighty Tunisia. Um, I would say he is, um, he's, he's done what's required, but I would also say he's been... Uh, 
one of the most fortunate finishers in World Cup history in, in the sense of the goal he got, um, which cannoned off his foot when uh, quite possibly in an offside position and was credited to him. And also the, the winner he had against uh, Tunisia, where for some reason uh, the, the player marking him, uh, England's most uh, dangerous striker at the back post with a corner kick with minutes to go in a match that Tunisia were about to draw, decided to run 10 yards up the field and leave him standing by himself to head it past the goalkeeper. So um, I wonder um, how long um, his luck will hold and, and how he'll perform um, against the stronger teams that they're going to meet in the uh, knockout stages. So was that, just to be clear, Doug, was that a hit or a miss? A hit, but not as big a hit as people are making out. Okay, Guys, I just want to ask you a question there, Duncan, on Harry Kane, just because um, I was listening to the punditry on the Five Live, and the guys, they had some ex-pros in there, I think Danny Murphy was one of them, and he was saying that Harry Kane should be left out of the Belgium game, and that Harry Kane would be happy with that. Now, am I crazy here, but Harry Kane's on five goals... Belgium are going to be fielding an understrength squad. Surely he'll, no matter what, to play in that game. Uh, yeah, I think having watched Harry Kane, um, the goals that Harry Kane famously claimed during the Premier League season, he doesn't strike me as a man who would want to uh, step out from a game against Belgium, which Belgium might not actually want to win, um, given the setup in the group and given that uh, Belgium and England will go into that match knowing who their potential round of 16 opponents are and knowing that it might be to their advantage not to be first in the group. Um, I would have thought if Harry Kane um, is targeting a World Cup golden boot, he'd definitely want to be playing in that game. I wouldn't be happy about being left out. I think it'd be a brilliant, surreal situation if Harry Kane gets a hat-trick against Belgium and his fellow players shun him for celebrations because they know he's just put them into the wrong half of the draw. That would be sensational. <laughs> OK. <laughs> well, uh, a player that's definitely had some uh, some troubles to seek in terms of uh, the coverage of him in uh, this World Cup and someone who on the pitch perhaps has underperformed. Or maybe you'll tell me differently, Ian, Raheem Sterling. Um, I think he has underperformed based on his, uh, what the way that he played in his season for Manchester City last season. At his best ever goals tally, best ever assists. He looks to me like a player struggling for confidence. I don't know why that is. He, he did have a little bit of um, argy-bargy with the media regarding tattoos before the tournament started, but he then fronted that up, I thought, very well and spoke very well. I'm not sure he fits the system that Gareth Southgate plays. Uh, he needs to play wider, and instead he's playing in a two behind Harry Kane. And I think he needs that space and freedom of the wing to uh, for him to get the best and he also needs someone to pass the ball into him inside the channel which again he's not getting so um, I think he's a miss so far uh, and I also think that he may pay for um, his performance against uh, it, even though it was against Panama 6-1 when he may um, be dropped for the, the Belgium game Just on, on Raheem Sterling I would urge anyone who hasn't read it yet to look out for the interview he gave to the Players Tribune um, last week um, because I, I think if you read that, that will change uh, your opinion of Raheem Sterling's interest. Excellent and fascinating bit of journalism. Yeah, it's brilliant. Uh, okay, um, next one is Kyle Walker. Kyle Walker, I think, is a miss, and I think is a dangerous miss for England. I understand why Southgate has been playing him there. Um, it does allow what's already an attacking lineup to be even more 
um, aggressive. I'm intrigued to see if he retains him at, at centre-back against stronger teams where um, defensive qualities matter, particularly in a, in a three-man defence where every individual um, is susceptible. And John Stones has errors in him. Um, Harry Maguire obviously has errors in him. And Kyle Walker, I think it's been pointed out, he's not a centre-back. And we've seen, for example, in the penalty conceded against Tunisia, that he doesn't have the experience of defending as, as a centre-back, doesn't address the ball properly when it comes in aerially. And it's not a surprise because the, the, the guy has only played one match in his entire professional career, club career, as a centre-back. And Southgate and Steve Holland have decided to convert him to a centre-back. I think to get more attacking element in the team, but also to keep Kieran Trippier and Kyle Walker in the same team because they're two of their best performing players at Premier League level this season. Jordan Henderson, Ian. Well, he's one that definitely divides opinion, Johnny. And um, look, he's not hes not Stevie Gerrard. He's not even a tenth of Stevie Gerrard in terms of um, the way that Gerrard could you know, control a game, pass 60-yard diagonal balls without even thinking about it, etc., He's a functional, hard-working midfielder. I think he will get caught out against better opponents who press on to him. Um, he does have errors uh, in him in terms of losing possession. We've seen him already. And against better players, that will only increase. I think we'll see Eric Dyer start against Belgium and then it'll be a toss-up for the round of 16 game as to which one gets in. I think Dyer's probably the more skillful and more um, rounded midfielder. What Henderson does have is uh, a lot of great determination and, and leadership qualities. Uh, but I'd say he's a miss. Jesse Lingard. I definitely hit. Um, I just criticised Southgate for changing his formation to get Kyle Walker in there. I think the formation change that he's made suits Jesse Lingard um, probably more than any other player. Um, it really takes advantage of his ability to run into... Um, scoring or creating positions in the penalty box, just in front of the penalty box. He really should have scored more goals, given the, the positions he's got into so far. But is a, is a serious danger, has been a serious danger to opponents. I think he will be a serious danger even to stronger opponents, because when he plays that way for Manchester United, he's, he manages to... Um, create unexpected chances against top-level opponents. So I don't see that changing against um, better teams. Um, and it, it's, a, it's a real weapon um, for England at the moment. Um, and it's obviously risky to play with, um, with two creative midfielders and just, um, just Jordan Henderson backing them up. But uh, so far, they've been getting the rewards for that risk. Okay, and finally, we go to Ian and John Stones. Scored more goals in the World Cup than Wayne Rooney. He's a player of two halves, Johnny. Simple as that. Good in the opposition half, not so good in his own half. And the two goals he scored, fair enough. And he also had an assist, remember, as well for Harry Kane um, in the game against Tunisia. Uh, Harry Maguire did assist in that game as well. Look, England haven't played anyone yet. They've played Tunisia and they've played Panama. We'll see much better on Thursday when they play against Belgium how that defence holds up. I don't think I'm alone in believing that the defence is the weakest part of this England team. And Southgate will have to address those um, uh, problems, as Duncan has already uh, referred to, with regards to the formation and who he plays in terms of personnel. Stones is... Uh, any player with confidence, which is what these England players have right now, 
um, have got a chance of performing better than they actually are as players. But the World Cup finals is where you get found out if you're not as good as you think you are or you're not as good as other people think you are. And I think that's where England will get found out in this World Cup, despite the fact that I've been very happy to see them um, win and play well so far. Uh, but I think they will have to correct uh, the way they play in defence and the way they manage the defence. Stones last season at Manchester City had a very in-and-out campaign. And one of the reasons for that was Guardiola saw the weaknesses in him, especially when he'd been bored down upon by speedy, skillful opponents where he can't be trusted to make the right decision. And we've got a lot of speedy, skillful opponents in this World Cup that England could face. So I'd say, as I said, miss in his own half, hit in the other opposition half. Okay, guys, I'm going to bring this transfer window to a close. To continue the debate, you can. I'm on Twitter at Johnny R. McFarlane. And more importantly, if you want to get in touch with either of our pundits, you can. Duncan is at Duncan Castles and Ian is at Garbo SJ. Don't forget, we are looking for a sponsor. So if you're part of a company that wants to associate yourself with one of the fastest growing podcasts in the UK, please get in touch via our social media channels. If you want to get the pod as soon as it becomes available, please subscribe at iTunes, Acast or any other good podcasting service. And if you're feeling really generous, if you could review and rate us on there with a five-star rating, that would be phenomenal. We'll be back next Tuesday before 3pm. Until then, thanks for listening.